This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. Coming. Um, I am the, the co-director of this initiative with Chip Blacker, who is here. And fortunately, I cannot move too easily. It's backwards. And um, I would like to uh, first thank enormously uh, Relevit and Dick Scott, who have been organizing this conference and who have been co-chairing uh, the organizing committee of this symposium. I would like also to encourage you to look at a guide for the faculty to this international initiative. And I would like to encourage you to form one of the working groups that we are talking about here. Again, all my thanks to Ray and to Dick, and I'm going to let Ray tell you more about the program and uh, what uh, a treat we have in store for us today. So welcome to all of you early on a Monday morning to this uh, symposium on technology and culture. Um, it was the brainchild of Elizabeth and Chip, who are the directors of Stanford's International Initiative. And I would like to um, join Elizabeth in thanking the members of this uh, steering committee who helped to organize these panels. Aside from Dick Scott and me, we have Ian Morris uh, from Classics, Grant Miller from Medicine, Jeremy Weinstein from Political Science, and Ray Derzo from Environmental Science. So. Um, the idea was to pick a number of areas where technology and culture interact in interesting ways, uh, both historically and in the present, but in particular with an international focus uh, to, the, to the topics. And so you'll see we have four sessions. Uh, this first one on the impact of technology on gender and gender equity issues. The second one on culture, technological change and development. Uh, then we have, um, as a keynote speaker at lunchtime, for which I hope a number of you will be able to join us, David Kennedy from the History Department, uh, who is one of the speakers in the first panel after lunch on technology, culture, and national security. And then finally, at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, we have a session on health technology adoption and how culture and culture change has affected the effectiveness of health technologies in a number of areas. So the first panel this morning is being chaired by our brand new dean of H&S, and we're just delighted that uh, Richard Soller was willing to do this just a few weeks into his uh, appointment as dean of H&S. And those of you who study history will know that Stanford has rated the University of Chicago for um, senior leadership in the past. So we're repeating history here. Delighted to have Richard on board. A little bit about his background. Um, as I say, he came from University of Chicago, where he was the provost. His PhD was from Cambridge, and a BA in Greek and history from University of Illinois. A member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, uh, David's research, uh, Richard's research has concentrated on Roman social and economic history, in particular patronage relations, the family, and the imperial economy. And I understand there's a new book in the Cambridge Economic History of Greco-Roman Antiquity coming out, currently in press, uh, in which there's a chapter by Richard on gender and labor in Roman households. So he's uh, still at it even uh, while he's provost, uh, or while he was provost at Chicago. And um, David, uh, Richard, sorry, over to you for the panel. Thank you, Thank you Ray. Um, I'm glad to have a chance to join you this morning. And even though 
uh, I was in invited, I think, as a purely ceremonial figure. This happens to be a subject that I know something about for my field, a Roman history, so I'm going to start with just a few words to give you some deeper history uh, to assess the kind of change that we're going to be talking about uh, in the world uh, today. The, the subject of the panel this morning is uh, the wide-ranging implications of the construction of gender roles for who is educated and how technology is developed and applied. Um, as I say, this is a subject that, that I actually have a forthcoming chapter about uh, for the Roman Empire, roughly the two, first two centuries AD, and it's, I think, worth remembering just how dramatically things have changed in the last century or two uh, in, to make the uh, recent generations of human history quite unlike anything that went before. Uh, just to start quickly with the demographic context, of course, in the Roman Empire, uh, all food was organic and life expectancy at birth was 25 years. Um, what that meant was that uh, women uh, had to have probably five or six children on average, uh, those who lived through their childbearing years. And so the burden of childbearing was dramatically different from what it has become over the last century. When we think about the ideologies of gender, uh, one of the things that, that I would uh, ask us to think about are the differing spheres in which differing ideologies can coexist. And we see this clearly in the case of the Roman Empire uh, in the sense that uh, women in Roman law, one of the great edifices that the Roman Empire bequeathed to, to later European history, uh, in Roman law, women had equal property rights they could inherit, dispose of property uh, on the same footing as men. Uh, in law, property rights, uh, there was no sharp gender distinctions made. But in the work sphere, there was clearly a, a, a gendered ideology. And it was a conventional one found around the Mediterranean. That is, men were to do the outdoor work in the fields, and women were to do the indoor domestic work, taking care of children, managing household storage and consumption, uh, and managing the domestic slaves in the wealthier households. And there's reason to believe that this ideology affected practice. Uh, when we look at the occupations for men and women, uh, men clearly were a much more highly uh, uh, trained in the cities, in the different crafts than women, to judge from the occupation labels. So the, the world has changed a lot, and that's what we'll be talking about today. Uh, we have three panelists, uh, starting with Denise Johnson, uh, Associate Professor of Surgery. So I have slides, and uh, I want to say welcome, and thank you very much for the invitation to speak. If you can... I, I'm out of my element. I'm here with a lot of uh, people who are not in science. And I want to talk a little bit about, I think there was a great segue to discuss the differing roles that women have. Uh, it hasn't been that long ago that women in surgery were very, very rare. And in the 30 years that I've been here uh, and have been in the, in the business, the roles have really changed. And I want to say that because it's made a big difference in how I practice 
It's made a big difference in the way that we approach surgery training. And I don't think that anyone could have imagined being one of 12 surgery chiefs. I trained at Cook County in Chicago, so I'm another Chicagoan. And now I'm in a department where 50% plus are women. And just the demographic change has made a huge difference. One of my fields is uh, looking at breast cancer and breast cancer outcomes. And the outcomes for women have been usually hidden under a cloak. In other words, you came to the doctor and the doctor told you, this is what you're <laughs> gonna have. You're gonna have this type of surgery, you're gonna have this type of chemo, and this is your survival statistics. With the advent of more women in medicine, with the advent of the internet, uh, we have now opened up the door for many people to come in with papers, with suggestions on how they're gonna be treated, and it's, it's refreshing for most of us, and it's not refreshing for some. One of the fields that I'm in, involved in is the immunology of breast cancer. And the great thing about collaborating at Stanford is that I'm able to work with a cross-section of, of, of people, both in medicine and in engineering. And we've now divided our uh, work into things that are both technical in terms of interoperative imaging, as well as just basic science and medicine. The slide that you see up there was a paper, is a paper that's published in the Public Library of Science. And that's, a, that's an outstanding effort. And the reason that it's so outstanding is that we're able to get women and men to read anything. They don't have to have a subscription. They could go right to this article and read about how immunology is changing the way that we approach all solid tumors. So one of the areas here is it used to be thought that tumor cells attacked the body and that the tumor was separate from the body. We now recognize that your own immune system really is fundamental in deciding on whether you're gonna attack that tumor, if you're gonna survive it. And it's not so much that the tumor is an entity by itself, but the interaction of the body's immune cells. And that is what we have uh, come across and that's an, uh, we have about a $7 million grant now to study that. I'm gonna go here. I don't know if that's... Page down. Okay. So we're um, just gonna talk about this in two more slides. And the reason I wanna talk about that is that this is a place where in the past, most women weren't involved in this kind <laughs> of hard science. And now I work with, again, 50% plus women who are changing the way or, or kind of shifting the paradigm of the way that cancer is being diagnosed, imaging uh, techniques, and it's so exciting to see that in just 30 years. So we're not talking about centuries, but in just a short period of time. And what we did was we looked at human specimens at Stanford, and we looked at the patients who did well and those patients who didn't, and we looked at why they seemed to recur stage for stage, and it had to do with the immune system. This is a, a training set, and it's our hypothesis was that women who had a poor immune system did worse than women who didn't. And we divided them by the ALN as axillary lymph nodes and tumor-free lymph nodes. And what we could see is that those patients that have positive nodes did do poorly, but not based just on positive tumor cells. And I'm gonna try to go. 
With this slide shows the staining of lymph nodes, and CD8 are cytotoxic or killer T cells. They actually kill or attack tumor cells. And the other uh, sentinel node are breast cancer cells in the purple, and I don't have a, a laser to show you. But we found out that patients who had a lack of the helper T cells and the cytotoxic T cells actually did worse. So I'm going to stop now just to say that these are areas that are going to come out uh, more and more. We're using these techniques of finding these cytotoxic T cells to not just tell about prognosis of breast cancer as well as melanoma and, and colon cancer, but we're also using these techniques to help image or identify women who are at poor, worse prognosis with breast cancer. And with that, I'll, I'll end for now. Thanks. Okay. Uh, next up is uh, uh, Clifford Ness, uh, professor of communications. Although I study technology, using these is often beyond my abilities. Is the AV person, which, which button do I press to switch to my screen? Oh, okay. It, I, I did. Here you go. Uh, pop back to laptop? No, it's still. It's just, it keeps on. There you go. Brilliant. <clears throat> Thank you. Um, what I want to talk about today is when I first started getting involved in the area of human-computer interaction, I was trained as a sociologist, and my colleagues told me it would finally be a relief. You would no longer have to worry about individual differences of any kinds, because even if your users brought them to the table, the computer certainly wouldn't, and you wouldn't have to worry about gender, race, ethnicity, country of origin, etc. But unfortunately, my research has sort of a different conclusion to it. What I'm going to be talking about today is talking. And it turns out if there's one thing that really does seem to distinguish humans, it's talk. Speaking is one of the most fundamental human abilities. People with IQs as low as 50, I often tell my students, people who go to Cal, can, can't do many <laughs> things. But nonetheless, they can speak. They can speak quite well. And in fact, even if you have a brain that's one-third the size of a normal human brain, which means you can't really manage much at all, you can't manage daily life, you can't do much of anything, but you can speak. So that suggests there's something really primitive about speaking. Now, happily, there's a nice symmetry, because humans aren't only built to speak, although it may not always feel this way, they're also built to listen. So in fact, in the womb, we can show that fetuses will respond differently to their mother's voices than other voices. By one day old, infants can distinguish speech from other sounds. That includes not only thuds and bangs, it includes music, it includes dogs barking, birds singing, etc. And by four days old, even though of course they don't know any of the words in their native language, they can distinguish their native language from all other languages. That is, they know the sounds. This suggests that this pretty, and Dick looks skeptical, but it really is true, Dick. Um, why is it true? It's because the human brain is so tuned to exactly these differences. 
Now, speech is more than words, though. It's more than just processing signals and translating them into meaning. Because humans are acutely aware of what we call paralinguistic cues. That is, speech isn't just about transmitting words. It's about transmitting characteristics of the speaker, which the listener is acutely attuned to. Of all of those, gender is the most powerful. As far as we can tell, infants distinguish gender by voice before they distinguish it any other way. And it's probably the first demographic cue they distinguish. It's probably easier to distinguish gender than it is to dis uh, detect age or race or other characteristics. Now, other voice characteristics are also important. I won't be discussing them today. But with a little bit of thought, you can realize you can distinguish a person's age by their voice. You can distinguish their accent or country of origin. We've done some amazing research showing that accent matters in technology, personality, and of course, emotion. We can all detect emotion in voice. What I'll focus on today is gender. Now, when we start sticking voices on technologies, we could ask the question, would people still assume gender matters? That's not to say they couldn't detect gender. Obviously, if you hear a voice, it doesn't seem very complex to distinguish whether it's female or male. But if we're sitting on a computer like this, just sort of boxy, clearly not morphologically male or female, would we nonetheless respond to it as if it had gender? What I want to talk about today is a few different gender-based responses towards computers. The first is social identification, the concept that when you see someone like you, you react differently than when you see someone not like you. Would females hearing a female voice computer say, boy, that's so much more like me than a male voice computer and conversely for males? Intuitively, that seems ludicrous. Will we apply stereotypes? Now, whatever arguments one might find for stereotypes having to do with culturation, socialization, et cetera, none of those should apply to technology. Computers don't grow up with particular groups of friends or embedded in particular cultures or norms or contexts. So to apply stereotypes to them seem absurd. But will people do that? So let me talk about a few studies we've done in the lab concerning computers with voices and whether people will apply social rules. In this first study, we're looking at conformity and the basic finding that when you meet someone who is like you, you're more likely to agree with them. In this study, we used obviously synthetic voices. We gave a choice dilemma situation. This is where there's a situation described to the person using the computer, and they're asked which of two decisions they should make, and we had the computer providing advice on the subject. We then had people fill out a paper and pencil questionnaire. This is a scenario, and as you're glancing through this, we use college students as a very common scenario. Um, a male and female are sharing the room, and the, the female is deciding, should I tell my parents that I am sharing the room or throw my roommate out of town? Here's what the computer might recommend. She should ask him to leave for a while. If she tells the truth to her parents, it would cause a lot of unnecessary trouble. She can always confess her situation to her parents. Okay. Now, likely the first thing you're thinking is, that doesn't sound like any person I've ever met. It almost sounds Martian-like. Let's hear the second voice. She should, she should ask, ask him to leave, leave for, for a while. while. Sorry. She should ask him to leave for a while. If she tells the truth to her parents, it would cause a lot of unnecessary trouble. Again, neither of those sounds like a person you've met. It's obvious those are both computer generated. They're not the highest quality synthesis. And we did that on purpose. We want it amply clear that to apply gender to that 
would be ridiculous. Now, probably all of you are sitting there likely thinking you're not more persuaded by the, the first voice if you're female and the second voice if you're male, but that's exactly what happened in these studies. What we see is the blue, who are the female participants. Uh, for the uh, female voice, we see, looking at female, TTS means text-to-speech or synthetic speech. For um, We see that the female voice was more persuasive to the females than the males. That is, people were more likely to take the advice as given by the female computer than the male computer, but we see the opposite effect for the male synthetic voice, namely that male participants, um, almost significant at the 0.05 level, were more likely to accept the advice of the male synthetic voice. There were a number of scenarios, not just one. We also notice that there's an effect, particularly for males, and we see this throughout an enormous number of studies. Males, in particular, are incredibly dismissive of female voices, including female voices like the one you just heard that obviously isn't female in any sense at all. Um, we also found a social identification that when the voices match, now remember, what I mean by match is not Martian to Martian, but human female to that first voice and human male to the second voice, people found the content more likable and more credible. Okay, now you may say, well, you know, granted those two voices sounded different, they were uh, odd, but at the same time, the first one did sound more like me than the second if you're female, perhaps, and vice versa. So we want to push this a little harder and look at gender stereotyping. So in the second study, we had that same voice, the gender of the voice. We also had male and female users. And here we had stereotypical gender products. So for example, we had an encyclopedia of guns, an encyclopedia of sewing, a um, Honus Wagner baseball card, and a um, Susan Lucci, she's a soap opera star trading card. So we kept the products even the same in this. And they were ludicrously um, gendered. And we wanted to see, would people be more convinced by a product spokesperson who would know what the product was like? And this was an e-commerce website. So let me just very, very quickly play you. This will be the same female voice pitching a stereotype. May you may you outrageous cowboy boots. These may you may you cowboy boots are so funky. They are all leather and go to the calf. The bottom is... Okay. Here's a male voice, quote unquote. May you may you outrageous cowboy boots. These may you may you cowboy boots are so funky. They are all leather and go to the okay. calf. Okay. Are you less persuaded by him describing him, quote, than men's him fry all leather western boots. This pair of all leather men's fry western boots. Size 90 comes from Homestead, Florida. Now, it probably occurs to you that neither of those voices would ever wear boots. Hopefully not. But nonetheless, did it seem more appropriate in some rather seemingly bizarre sense to do that? And what happens? The answer is yes. For the female products, we see the blue is the female. We see that the female voice was seen as more appropriate than the male voice. For the male product, we see the opposite. Well, appropriateness, not a big deal. But what about credibility of the descriptions? Sure enough, once again, the female voice was much more credible when, um, I'm sorry, for the male product, we see that the male voice was much more credible than the female voice, the two bars on your uh, right, and equal for the female, but we also notice the interaction such that the female voice is much more credible describing female product than male, and vice versa for the male. And again, we see a general tendency, male voices, and again, male in the, the weirdest sense doing that. Note that the voice even feminized the product 
We asked, how likely would it be for women to like products like this? How feminine is the product, et cetera? And once again, we see this strong effect where the female voice, especially for, for male products, feminizes the product. Finally, now you may say, okay, but look, you know, we're not selling stuff here. We're not hopefully giving, I live in a freshman dorm, I'm resident fellow, so I do give advice on these crises of the day, but most of us don't. Why should we really worry about these results beyond the general? So I decided for my third study to just show you what happens to teaching. So we had a male or female, quote unquote, teaching computer, another computer that praised the computer, the first computer. So I would say that computer did a great job or not. These were actually recorded speech. This was um, actual males and females speaking. We used a number of different males and females to control for all that stuff. And what happened? How smart was the, um, oops, this is backwards, sorry. How smart was the computer? Uh, this is sadly backwards. It turns out that male and female backwards here. It turns out that when a male voice computer praises the computer, people think it did better. Again, consistent with the literature that says praise from male uh, faculty or teachers at the high school level is more compelling than female. Um, how much did they like it? Um, once again, whoops, these are backwards. Sorry, male and female, sorry about that. Praise, when males praise, they get more credit for it than females, and this is true as computers as well. Again, please flip to two bars. Males, uh, people, both males and females, think that evaluation is much more likable, positive evaluation is much more likable from a male than a female. And how smart was the teaching computer? Well, we see another kind of gender stereotypes. When it comes to teaching about love and relationships, we see that the female, this one is the right direction, the female voice computer was seen as a better teacher, even though we kept everything constant. Whereas for technical subjects, we see an almost significant opposite effect, and the interaction is highly significant. So here, doing the exact same thing on the exact same box, using the exact same tools, the gender of the voice influenced how a, a computer could seem. So let me just quickly uh, summarize and say, oh, this is a very important point. We asked our participants, did the voice of the computer matter? And to a person, they said, absolutely not. Only an idiot would worry about the gender of a computer voice. Yet that's what everyone did. They denied socially identifying. The females said that they didn't feel any more close to the male than the female computer voice and vice versa. They certainly denied that they would ever stereotype technology and in fact denied harboring any stereotypes at all, period, regardless whether human or computer. So what does this tell us? It tells us that as we think about cultural differences, there does seem to be something so primitive that it likely applies in all cultures, namely the assignment of gender is fundamental, it's extremely powerful, leads to identification, rich stereotyping, while stereotyping may vary across cultures. <coughs> um, the, uh, well, the particular stereotypes may vary across cultures. We, virtually all cultures, have stereotypes. And this assignment seems to be automatic and unconscious. People are unaware of it. Now, when I presented these results in the past, people tell me how depressing they are. And we have other studies showing just about every stereotype you could possibly imagine applied to women applies to women computers as well. So should we get really depressed? And the answer is partly yes, but there is also a bright side here. And that is the fact that people apply stereotypes to computer voices means we have a tremendous opportunity through clever selection of voices to break those stereotypes. What if we imagine for an extended period of time that all stereotypically male software, teaching software involving stereotypically male subjects, have female voices and vice versa? Could we break stereotypes? Could we also address the pipeline problem in a rather creative way? 
It's very difficult to train up enough people to get them in the pipeline, not to say that obviously isn't a clear thing to be committed to, but could we solve it simply by immediately just having the voices that are recorded reflect what is the um, non-prevailing view? So I'll stop there. Thank you. And then the, the third presentation this morning will be by Christine Min Watipka from the uh, School of Education. Good morning. In my talk today, I contribute to that part of the panel that seeks to elucidate the question of who is educated and involved in technological innovation. My work on this topic has focused on the status of women in science and engineering fields of study at the tertiary level. Global attention to this issue has been of concern to me as well. I begin by providing gender disaggregated data for enrollments in technology-related fields of study. While much has been written and discussed about the underrepresentation of women and other minorities in these fields, the data reveal worrisome declines in enrollments for both women and men over time and around the world. Moving further along the technology pipeline, we see significant disparities by gender and region for those employed in research and development. Such data reveal that those who are educated and involved in technological innovation are mostly men. Beyond the inefficiencies this imposes on national economies, countries have come to agree that this is an issue of rights as well as progress. The result has been increasing global attention to the issue of gender and technology. The second half of my presentation will provide evidence from intergovernmental organizations and international conferences revealing the discourse surrounding the low numbers of women in science and technology. What may develop out of this presentation is a challenge to, quote, bring more women into science and technology. While numerous efforts at the global, national, and school-specific levels have been made to open the doors of these fields to girls and women, I urge us to look more deeply at science and technology to determine what has led large segments of societies, men and women alike, to increasingly choose non-science and technology fields of study and work. To understand participation by field of science, the UNESCO Institute for Statistics put out some of the most recent data on gender gaps by field of study and employment in research and development. To examine the former, let's look at field relative parity indices. These indices reflect female participation in a specific field compared to the national average for all fields at a given level of education. Participation above or below the national average is indicated by an FRPI of greater than one or an FRPI of less than one. This figure presents the comparative FRPIs for all available countries for first-degree graduates in the fields of engineering, computing, and life sciences. These results should come as no surprise to most of us. The overwhelming majority of engineering graduates are men. 
All of the countries with available data report an FRPI below 1 with an average of just 0.44. Therefore, female participation in engineering studies is on average less than one half of the total female participation in first degrees across all fields. In the case of computing, the report says it's fair to say that universities are still manning the information society. The field relative parity index for computing is higher or equal to one in only 8% of the countries, but lower than 0.25 in 18% of them. The average of 0.55 is slightly higher than for engineering, but still shows a high predominance of men in this field. On the other hand, a different picture emerges for the life sciences, a field not in our broad definition of technology, but as a natural science, and which includes medicine here, was once male-dominated. Nearly three-quarters of countries report a field relative parity index higher or equal to one, with an average of 1.1. Female graduates are therefore clearly predominant in this field. This leaves us wondering what it is about the life sciences that has drawn an ever-increasing number of women to its ranks. And might it be possible for technology to someday, somehow, likewise enjoy greater gender equality? For now, what do these educational disparities mean for job opportunities? Of all the job prospects in technology, research and development offers its labor force with the opportunity to create new innovations and knowledge and is therefore seen as a relatively prestigious line of work. Occupational data have long confirmed the notion that when women make inroads into male-dominated fields, they tend to get segregated into the least prestigious and lower paid occupations in those fields. A look at women's share of the total number of researchers by region confirms this. On average, around the world, women comprise a little more than one-fourth of those conducting research. The high proportions of women in other Europe and Central Asia reflect historical trends that were once supported by strong scientific establishments along with gender parity. The results for Latin America and Southeast Asia reflect equal opportunities for women in higher education, coupled with relatively young scientific establishments that were launched in eras when women's status was relatively good. Gender disparities in science and technology education and employment are taking place in a climate of stagnant or declining interest in these fields of study around the world. Developed by my colleagues Gilly Drory and Hei Young Moon, this figure reveals interesting trends in nine major disciplines. Most evident is the dramatic growth in the social sciences the world over. Between 1965 and 1994, 1995, enrollments in the social sciences relative to all other disciplines jumped from 15% to 30%. For those of us in the social sciences, this has been welcome news and we've benefited from growing interest in our research and courses. But as interesting as we may find our work, graduates of these fields face greater challenges in the labor market. Those courses of study that increasingly translate more directly into good paying jobs and ste steeper career ladders fail to attract students. Over this time period, engineering maintained its relative share at around 13%. Education also held its ground. The remaining six disciplines, humanities, natural sciences, medical sciences, law, agriculture, and art, 
lost their relative share in tertiary enrollment. Most notable here is the sharp decline in the humanities. From around 20% of total higher education enrollments in 1965 to 12% 30 years later. Similarly, my colleague Francisco Ramirez and I examined means of science and engineering enrollments relative to enrollments in all fields. We too find declining shares of science and engineering over 20 years. In 1972, over 22% of enrolled students were in these fields compared with 18.5% in 1992. Both men and women have turned away from these fields in this time period. In 1992, under 10% of women in higher education chose science and engineering as their major field. The global community is cognizant of the low and in some cases declining numbers of females in science and technology. What perspectives has, the globe, has this global community adopted as strategies to address this issue? Among the international arenas allowing for the creation and dissemination of global norms and principles, international conferences play a key role. The topic of women in science and education or training first entered the international discourse in 1979 at the Conference on Science and Technology for Development in Vienna. By 1993, just 14 years later, at another international conference, it is regarded as being well-documented and a matter of great concern. Now keep in mind that documents stemming from international conferences are not legally binding. Even so, they play an important role in highlighting new issue areas and laying the groundwork for future action. This is especially true for women's issues, as said here by activist Charlotte Bunch. Undeniably, international conferences have significantly increased women's participation, not only at the international level, but also at the local and national levels, where women's voices have helped to determine how their governments inter interact with international bodies. Here in the United States, the approach commonly relied upon to remedy women's underrepresentation in science and technology aligns with a liberal feminist belief in increasing access. Provide women with fellowships, mentors, and role models, and other opportunities in technology, and they will come to it, it is argued. An alternative perspective stresses the role of women as women in science. I call it the transformative approach. This viewpoint argues that the liberal approach fails to recognize the gendered nature of science and technology. Rather than bringing women into science as it currently exists, it calls for changing science and technology to include women, to transform science and the creation of scientific knowledge. The ramifications of such an approach are many and include demasculinizing science, challenging the biases of scientific medical establishments, and demanding science be created not only by women, but for women, and for the issues that are relevant of their, in their lives. And I think that this morning, Dr. Johnson's uh, presentation highlighted that, and the role that uh, feminist activists, or women in general, have played in changing the way in which breast cancer research is being conducted around the world. Here's some examples of how um, these two approaches, the, the liberal and the transformative one, have been talked about in international conferences. Especially in older conferences, remedies to women's underrepresentation in science and technology have focused on issues of access. 
The document resulting from the third International Women's Conference stated the following. Special measures should also be adopted to increase equal access to scientific, technical, and vocational education, particularly for young women. At the Conference on Environment and Development held in Rio de Janeiro in 1992, participants agreed to the following. Governments and educational authorities should foster opportunities for women in non-traditional fields and eliminate gender stereotyping in curricula. More recent conferences recognize women's unique experiences and perspectives, which could be used to the benefit of science and technology. At Project 2000 Plus International Forum on Scientific and Technological Literacy for All, it was affirmed that women's existing scientific and technological competence in subjects such as agriculture, chemistry, medicine, must be recognized and built on instead of attempting to replace their knowledge with standard forms, meaning forms that were created by men. And furthermore, at the Fourth, fourth World Conference on Women, science tech textbooks do not relate to women's and girls' daily experience and fail to give recognition to women scientists. In short, global attention to gender and technology urges governments to not only open the doors of science and technology to women. Over time, we see more efforts to actually call for a transformation of what is meant by science. However, the possibilities for transformed science is usually centered on women in developing countries. Assisted first by the women in development movement and now gender mainstreaming, women in developing countries take part in many aspects of technology that impact their daily lives. What about gender technology in industrialized countries? What about at Stanford? In my course on education and the status of women, a number of my students are always skeptical that there could possibly be women's science and technology. I've had techie students tell me there's only one way to build a bridge. This past fall, I presented the students with slides of the Volvo Your Concept car. I first heard about the unique car at the Gendered Innovations in Science and Engineering Conference hosted by the Clayman Institute for Gender Research here at Stanford two years ago. Unveiled at the 2004 Geneva Auto Show, the Your Concept Car is the first concept car to be designed from start to finish by a team composed entirely of women. Among its many women-friendly features are gull-wing doors, headrests that accommodate ponytails, capless filling points, and extra storage. Indeed, there is more than one way to design a car. Finally, I want to just highlight some key features of STEM education programs, science, technology, engineering, and math education programs that prove successful for girls. The Girls in the System project was a partnership between the University of Arizona and the Sahuaro Girl Scout Council with funding from the National Science Foundation. These criteria listed here are meant to stimulate and nurture girls' interest in using methods of inquiry to enhance their understanding of STEM. Facilitators use challenging hands-on STEM activities that support and expand girls' abilities to solve problems using the tools of scientific investigation and their natural curiosity about how things work. Many of us probably did not benefit from science, technology, or engineering, or math studies guided by such criteria, at least not in high school. 
One of the important things to keep in mind is that these features can benefit girls and boys, women and men. Linking technology to students' everyday lives and preferred learning styles holds the potential to not only make technology more gender inclusive, the result may be more minorities, people with disabilities, and other diverse groups of individuals who hold great potential for making technology better. In conclusion, I predict a mixed picture for who participates in technology education and innovation. The global data reveal increasing apathy towards science and technology studies and very low proportions of women in technology around the world. We must use the opportunity of heightened global awareness to work together for transformations that may result in real change, real inclusion, and real benefits for all humankind. Thank you. Good. These were, uh, I think, challenging papers, and so um, I'd be glad to have questions uh, from the audience or if anybody on the panel wants to react to uh, any of the other uh, talks that, that they heard, uh, you're welcome to do that as well. Yes? Surely we can hear. We can hear you. Maybe try. Hello. Yes. yes. All right. Uh, we're really talking about the transformation of professional culture and in two different ways. One, the bringing of women in to the laboratories and the surgical rooms and so on, and not just uh, wiping the instruments or, or passing the towels, but actually doing the, the central work. And that's a huge change, as we all know. But the second change is bringing lay voices and consumer and uh, uh, patient uh, attitudes and responses and knowledge and interests into the decision-making process, into decisions about what to try and how to try it and so on. So, so those are huge transformations uh, that uh, go way beyond gender. Denise, why don't you? I, I, ag I agree. I think um, it is a little easy to fall into the trap of being in science but a mimicker. You know, just doing what you've been taught to do and not changing the paradigm. It's a little uncomfortable. And one of the things that I like is to change the way th people are thinking instead of just following the, I don't want to be stereotypical, old boys network. Um, and Globally, uh, I want to just add that there are a lot of grassroots movements to get all people, men, women, underrepresented minorities, included in the thinking process. Because we are, we're a culture sometimes that doesn't think. We want to just follow. And that's going to be a, a great big challenge. But there are those of us who are going along with it, and we're bringing in young people to think, not just to follow what I tell you to do, but to think. 
Question to Dr. Nass. Very impressed by your presentation, raising very interesting issues. I wonder, have you tested the effect of computer voices in other societies that may not be so gender biased? <clears throat> it's um, a great question. The answer is uh, yes. For example, with uh, Fidelity Japan, <clears throat> when we worked on a uh, voice interface for their stock trading system in Japan. It's been traditional that information about stocks is given by females. The actual trade is executed by a male, and literally when you're ready to trade, there's a transfer handoff. Um, we designed a system, and sure enough, people wanted that as well, even when they knew these were recorded voices, and thus wouldn't be embarrassed. I think the general finding is there's there's clearly very strong evidence that human brains are built to distinguish male from female voices. In fact, there's some very nice work. If you remove the pitch, which is the most common indicator of voice women speak with higher pitch, you still get about 85 to 90% accuracy in detecting male from female. So clearly there's something fundamentally built in about detecting this. Now, how we react once we've detected is obviously the more interesting and, and harder problem. So the answer is, I'm actually extremely pessimistic that somehow technology will somehow eliminate people's likelihood of noticing gender. That seems extremely unlikely. What can happen, however, is we can go to the second part, which is what conclusions do you draw based on that recognition? There, I think technology can play an enormous role. But yeah, it does seem to be cross-culturally powerful. Fabulous presentations. Thank you very much. Um, <clears throat> Um, given the, the substantial evidence for biological differences in terms of gender, um, it seems that uh, what you want to do is, is sort of celebrate the differences and, uh, and emphasize them in, in terms of, uh, for instance, um, optimizing treatment based on gender or, uh, or optimizing creativity based on gender. Th there was, th some of the presentations seemed to conflate the difference between uh, getting the most out of gender differences and trying to eliminate gender differences, which which Dr. Nass suggests is not going to happen, um, and and I, I I think it's important to distinguish those two. So the the first question would be: To what extent are we actually looking for equality, and in what sense are we looking for sort of uh, you know parity in terms of uh, uh, giving uh, most credibility to the differences? The second thing is, and it's it's terrible to try to, to, to always have to bring politics into everything. But, but if you look at science, um, it seems that, that the lack of funding in science is one reason why people are turning generally away from science. Uh, if you, for instance, look at the microcosm at Stanford of human biology versus biology, what you find is that uh, females, women tend to go toward uh, branches of biology that are more uh, policy-oriented, more humanistic, more uh, applied sort of things, and males maybe this maybe you know uh, are, are more tend to go to basic science. The question is, is that a good thing or a bad thing? I mean, it's it sort of brings up the idea of a female versus male car. Do we want to actually push all the females in terms of hard science, or do we want to change biology? We we also find at Stanford Medical School that the predominance of uh, students are female again because. Uh, it, this is a very sort of um, social kind of activity. So it's, it's basically the social side of science rather than the hard side of science. So w I'm just curious to hear what you have to say about equality versus parity. <laughs> I'm sure all three panelists have something to say about that. I do have something to say about that. Um, 
Well, when I talk about uh, women maybe having different ways of thinking or knowing or going at science, I'm you know, not saying that all women necessarily think a certain way. That So I, um, I guess the point is to, to highlight that even when we talk about women, we're talking about great diversity among women. But as um, Denise mentioned, uh, many times women do feel pressure to act like men. So even though they get access to science and technology, once they're there, they're made to play by rules that were created by men and usually for men. So I think that we have to go back to um, you know, the, the very root of it and say, well, who creates these rules? Who uh, creates the curriculum? Who determines how um, classrooms are organized or um, funding is granted or how laboratories are organized? And all these ways to really see the ways in which women can contribute in unique ways. And then um, to support those. Um, so to when we talk about equality, are we actually giving funding um, to these uh, new ways of organizing classrooms or laboratories? Um, are the papers that are coming out of these um, research groups being published in the best journals? So I think we really need to follow through with all, um, you know, in all stages of the pipeline um, so that we don't just stop at access, which is where I see a lot of the discussion in the United States really stopping. When I talk to um, my colleagues in Europe about this, they have a hard time with the approach of bringing women into science because they say that when you bring women into these environments, they're hostile ones. And so it's actually immoral for us to encourage women to go into these fields if we, don't ha if we haven't first really changed science and technology and made them places that are friendly to women. Um, yeah. Um, I, I, I think that it's really, we're really here to stretch our brains and not go along with the, sta the standards and the status quo. And I think that's what's exciting, and that there are a group of people who really want to expand the way that we do things. I love the slide of the, Vol the Volvo. You know, the idea that we can design something that is efficient and a wonderful car, but is inclusive of the differences in biology. And I, I'm all for the difference. I, you know, that, that's great. But we have to allow for everybody's thinking isn't the same. And in a global economy, in a global world, we're going to have to recognize the, the difference between different cultures, different men and women. Um, there's a great variety of thinkers, and if we don't allow those people who can think to think, we're going to lose out, and our, I think we're going to lose this world uh, in, a, in a big way. I actually, <clears throat> my, my training and in, in, in background inclination is the exact opposite of looking for gender differences. My research is about how people treat computers exactly the same way they treat people. So not only am I not interested in individual differences between humans, male and female, I'm not even interested in differences between mechanical things and, and real things. So, so I'm absolutely not a, a, an individual difference researcher or gender researcher. This was actually thrust upon me when a friend of mine, uh, who was one of the first females at a business school, came to me and said she was given advice uh, that she looked too female and spoke too female and that she should dress more male and behave more male. Um, probably better without a microphone. That's the consequence. Um, and so I got, so I said, okay, well, let's push this to the limit. So 
In those days, we had next cubes. They were these big, huge black cubes. And I said, you couldn't look more non-female than that, right? Your big black cube with a big black screen. Aha, we'll see whether it matters. And of course, we found these gender differences that to me were mostly disturbing against what I had predicted, sort of, et cetera. So I think for me, what it suggests is if you come from the opposite position, which is the heck with all of these differences. These differences are boring, irrelevant. Let's focus on what's similar, which is really the tradition I come from. You're still stuck with that. So at that moment, you can then make two decisions. You can either say, let us bemoan that and, and beat our heads, or turn around and say, OK, you know what? Let's make this a plus instead of a minus. So, so again, you know, my, my initial orientation is always any difference between any humans or humans and computers are always boring and silly and sort of noise in the system. But I've sort of been forced into the opposite conclusion. Hi, thank you very much for three fascinating um, uh, presentations. It's very much like the parable of uh, the blind men touching the elephant, where each part is touching a different part of the elephant, and they're all describing the same thing, just in different ways. My question is for Denise. I'm a little confused, not having a huge medical background. Um, could you speak a bit more about, I guess, how people's perceptions of these paradigms are affecting treatment. Is it that there's kind of a male model that sees, okay, cancer is a pathology, we must exercise that tumor out and <coughs> treat the patient? Or it's the idea that not considering the immune system as part of the treatment for cancer, that seems kind of bizarre to me, but is it really kind of that sense of, okay, there are competing paradigms of how we treat patients and you treat the disease, not the patient? I, well, um, basically, I just gave you a little snippet of, uh, of a research plan. One, to talk about the fact that we did kind of turn the concept of cancer around a little bit. Not that we're the only ones that have thought that way, but have taken that approach in the face of most people thinking that cancer is the, the bad guy. We're taking it as, yes, it's a bad guy, but there are a lot of other bad guys, and what can we do to fight it? But more importantly, it's the concept of collaboration and the change in uh, thinking of, uh, when I was in training, it was you ran a lab, you got the grant, you kept all your science in your lab, and more of the interdisciplinary work that I think Phil Pizzo and many others are championing, uh, that that is a way to gain the most out of a lot of smart people. If I just keep all of my ideas right here and I don't interact with you or you, then we don't grow. And that's really the point I was trying to make. And I think that, if you want to call it female, of collaboration, I don't know, but I think that's, that's an important concept, that we wanted to break down the walls of science and to blend in more with engineers, physicists, linguistics people, things like that. Did you want this? <coughs> I think a further comment on how women can impact on health care for themselves, for example, when I trained at Stanford Medical School, there were four women in my medical school class. Uh, now, as you hear, it's changed. The treatment for breast cancer was mastectomy, and there was no question, and the patient was not involved. You had breast cancer, you lost your breast, 
and now breast conserving therapy in the United States has finally become the norm. It took a long time where the European countries were maybe more female input. Uh, they were doing mastectomies uh, 40, 50 years ago, and they stopped doing mastectomies about 20 years before we did. So there's a good example of how women's input into their own health care has made a dramatic difference in their management. So uh, I'd like to make a few linkages between the, the presentations, uh, which I also applaud. Uh, thank, thanks to all of you for, for your time and, 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 and passion in presenting here today. Um, the, the first comment um, relates to Christine's data showing growth in, in biology um, and, and the life sciences in particular and its relationship to some of those fields where women have traditionally been underrepresented. We're already seeing the impact in medicine um, of, of more women going into the life sciences, presumably pre-med is a precursor to going into medicine. Um, it's interesting to me that the really important problems in engineering now are not based on physics as much as they were, or even on chemistry, but more on biology. So water treatment is really more biological. The new materials we're creating, sustainable materials, often are um, recyclable cradle-to-cradle -cradle using biological treatments. Um, some of the worst hazardous waste remediation situations we face are really being dealt with biologically now. Uh, we're, we're discovering there are bugs that can eat oil and there are bugs that can eat persistent organic compounds and so on. And um, the other thing is the, the social science vector where Dick Scott and Doug McAdam and I, Dick is, by the way, a sociology, I'm civil and environmental engineering, Doug, Scott, uh, Doug McAdam is a political sociologist. The three of us are working on one of the Institute's international initiatives grants to study um, how infrastructure comes into emerging countries. And it turns out the, the challenges are not tr traditional engineering technical challenges. They're really legal, political, institutional challenges with a, a bit of finance thrown in. And so for many of the world's most serious problems that face the planet, the spread of HIV, AIDS, and other um, resistant diseases, um, the, um, the provision of infrastructure, which is uh, not only a life-threatening, uh, the lack of infrastructure not only threatens life safety, especially clean water, but also living conditions for people around the world. Uh, the problems are really at the interface between the life sciences and the social sciences and traditional hard sciences and engineering. So at least I'm optimistic that some of these things will change. In fact, even the future of computing may be about biological computing because physicists have been very creative in pushing Moore's law and it's still going, but it seems to be running out of gas. And the, the friends I know at Intel and other places are really believing it is running out of gas unless we can figure out how to do biological computing. So we may see some big changes in the future. <laughs> Other questions? I guess one of the things that, that strikes me is, is the implication of, of uh, Cliff's uh, comments for Christine's problem and uh, the importance of getting, uh, recruiting, um, getting women on the faculty and teaching um, and in roles of, of authority. Um, and. Uh, I think that's a clear implication of, of, this, of this panel. And I think what, uh, what you said, uh, Denise, suggests that change is possible over time, though it's too slow in coming. Okay, if there are no other, yes, Chip. 
we have a um, living, breathing female engineer of significant accomplishment in the room. And I've seen her lean forward three or four times <laughs> to raise her hand and then pull back, which I think she's doing because <laughs> I think she's co-hosting this. And if she could put aside that, I would be very interested in what Elizabeth Pate Cornell might have to yeah. do. I saw her, yeah, I saw her raise her hand a few times. Thank you, Chip. And thank, thank you to all of you uh, for these, uh, these presentations. First, Cliff, there is something that I found intriguing in the fact that in fighter jets, apparently, when in deep trouble and when the pilot needs precise instructions as to what to do next, if I am not mistaken, and correct me because I'm not 100% sure, but I've heard that the voice that comes up at that point is a female voice mm -hmm. that's telling the pilots what to do next. There, there were two reasons for that, and they actually, they're, they're a very interesting mix of the <coughs> technical and social. Um, the technical reason is female voices tend to be better understood on average. It's easier to understand the female voice, especially in um, cockpits, because the higher pitches work well. That's, in some sense, the technical but boring explanation. The other explanation, and the reason why they're no longer doing that is, it used to be that all pilots were male. And what the actual reason to have a female voice was the startle and attentional reflex associated with hearing a voice you would never hear. Now that more fighter pilots are female, the effect doesn't work as much anymore because you're no longer shocked to hear a female voice in the cockpit. So, Again, what starts, what often has both the technical and the social component, if you ask which was more important, what they're discovering now is the really important effect was the social effect, that it was just a startling recognition uh, effect. It is true that children, especially, though it seems to lose in adulthood, children do pay more attention to female voices and male voices, which is why on children's television you see more female voices, and even um, the males on children's television, for the most part, have higher on average pitched male voices. Most of the Muppets have, for example, have higher than average um, pitch for uh, males. But, but again, it's an example where the social change now has implications that affect design. Dr. Denise, I had, a, I had a question which is a follow up on something that you have heard. Has the fact that more women have come into surgery changed the way female patients have a say in the treatment? Has that really changed? Now, it's difficult to separate two factors here. The change in technologies on the one hand, the change of the, uh, the kinds of treatments available, and the effect of the, uh, of the patient on their treatment. But do you perceive that the fact that a woman is talking to a woman in a surgical environment or an environment in which surgery decisions are made, do you perceive that uh, there has been a change in that interaction? Um, absolutely. I, I think the interaction is now uh, more collaborative. It, it isn't, I'm telling you what you're going to do, and this is it. And it comes from many, many factors, not just because there's a woman, but because of the information that's available on the internet and our ability to allow people to have the room to speak. So all of those factors come into play, and I think it has a lot to do not just being the woman there, but the society change, societal change, and letting people know that they do have an opportunity to talk to us. And, and I think because women are more available to listen to ideas and other options. And then finally, Christine, I, I, 
I was looking at your graphs and I know the challenge. Now, if you have a solution to how, how to attract more women in engineering, I buy it. And <laughs> just, just tell me, a few, um, a few things. I've spent a lot of years trying to convince young women that they do not have to sound like a guy and behave like a guy to know how to solve differential equations. It has Thank nothing you. to do with motherhood and apartheid. So that's, that's not a message that has really come through. There's the question of what is rewarded and what's taken seriously. I have noticed that uh, teaching ratings, I believe, and I would love to see a good, uh, good study there, particularly in highly technical subjects, seem, in my opinion, to be affected both by voices and sometimes by accents. So I've looked at accents for men, accents for women, can you can understand why, and I've looked at the nature of the voices, and the pitch does matter, and I've, I've noticed that. As far as publications, uh, I was tempted sometimes to put simply my initials, particularly when I was talking about defense <coughs> technologies, to take one example. And I was told, thank heavens, by a very good uh, colleague, don't do that. Spell out your first name. Mm. And I did, and I'm happy I did. The truth is that I have the feeling that male first names or, um, are more, uh, how can I say, give a little bit more credibility to highly technical um, no, that will probably change with, uh, with the more women in the field, and I hope so, and I, I don't know what's going on. Now, Ray is probably right that there is a shift in, uh, in technology, in science and technology, from uh, pure engineering as we knew it, astro uh, building bridges, towards biology and science moving towards biology. I think that's good news, and I believe that, uh, that it's an important point in the graph that you have shown. Again, if, if you have suggestions, I would be happy to hear them. I think the um, growth of interdisciplinary programs and majors here at Stanford is uh, a real boon to uh, you know, science and technology studies here. But if you look um, cross-nationally, other systems of higher education are um, far less open to these sort of innovations um, in the way they teach. Um, they're more conservative. They don't support interdisciplinary to the degree that we see here in the United States, especially at places like Stanford. So while on one hand, I think that um, these changes in higher ed spell good things for um, for those of us here, I think that we can't rely on them for uh, other countries where there are systems of higher ed. We'll take more time to um, adapt and to um, latch on to these proven methods of bringing a diverse, a more diverse student body. Go ahead. To your question, Elizabeth, there's been research. Female teachers, as far as you can control for everything, do get lower course evaluations. We did a study where we took the exact same female face, saying the exact same thing, uh, colleague Byron Reeves, and cut off either the low frequencies and boosted the higher, vice versa. Literally everything identical except frequency. And sure enough, the deeper voiced um, female was smarter, more energetic, more competent, etc. Um, there's research showing that when male uh, faculty at universities tell jokes about the class, gratuitous, you know, funny comments, male teachers gain, female teachers lose, so telling jokes on the students. Um, male teachers who praise students are given a lot of credit, females, probably it's a push, but certainly don't get any benefit and they actually get disadvantaged. So this has all been studied. The problem, of course, is what the heck do you do about it? So as I said, dressing in a black box won't help. 
Um, perhaps uh, vocal plastic surgery might or might not help. I don't quite know how to do that one. Um, the accents research is more complicated. There is stereotypical work suggesting they have certain accents that are stereotypically associated with performance in various disciplines. They're starting to do work on female responses to accents versus male. So the, the easier question, the, the part of the world I live in just describes things. We don't fix them. But I, I do agree that it would be great if the ed school could fix this stuff. That I would also say that I think you were uh, uh, courageous in, in using your first name because there, there is clear evidence for, for gender bias in refereeing. And so the idea that you would lead with that to help, to help break or work against the bias is, is uh, heartening. But if I could follow up on an earlier comment. One of the things that's striking about some of the traditional engineering professions is that they very much follow a guild kind of mentoring and, and career growth strategy. For example, a professional structural engineer, after getting her degree these days, or his degree, uh, might um, have to serve, and will have to serve, in every jurisdiction in the United States for five years under the supervision of a registered professional engineer in order to get licensed eventually. And so this has been true. You know, this comes out of the old occupational guilds in the UK and Germany and, and other parts of Europe. Probably goes way back to Greco-Roman <coughs> times, Richard. Maybe you could help me out there. No, actually but not, but not. Okay. <laughs> uh, but in any case, the, um, the engineering professions in what I view as the relatively slow-changing applied physical science. I mean, civil engineering today is basically what it was in the 1940s, except we use computers to do a lot of things that humans used to do, inverting matrices, solving differential equations. We do this all numerically with computers now. But in very fast-changing um, professions, such as biology, to some, some parts of computer science that uh, some of Cliff's students work in, voice recognition and so on, um, the, the, ch the field changes so fast that it's very unlikely your boss knows anything about that field. If you're a biologist these days, it's likely you know, you're a molecular biologist. Your, your, your boss may have been trained in cell biology, and, and her boss or his boss may have been trained in plant or animal biology. So if you, if you look for technical mentor, mentoring and leadership, you don't go up in your guild. You go laterally to recent graduates, uh, universities, and other people. And at least my observations on a very small sample, three children, a boy and two girls, are that Women seem to be really, really effective at exploiting these communities of practice, you know, through, through um, internet uh, chatting and through, through uh, belonging to, to online groups and so on. And in these modern professions, such as biology, you really do stay up to date by, by networking in a community of practice rather than by asking, you know, by sort of going up the career ladder for, if your boss doesn't know, maybe his boss will know or his boss will know. And so the structure of these professions and the career advantage may really favor women in the future. And this will have a big impact, I think, also. So I'll hand over here. Um, <coughs> apropos that, I think, um, I think the traditional model for changing these sort of things is incremental. Uh, it seems to me that uh, in terms of instituting change, what you need is something more dramatic that includes both uh, embracing education at the youngest levels because by the time you reach uh, people who are applying for professorships it's usually too late and secondly uh, in one in a large stroke sort of expanding uh, your definition of what the field entails so that embraces various aspects of culture and gender within excellence I, I disagree with the comment that we want to bring 
lay people without excellence uh, in terms of decision making, what we want to do is we want to uh, expand what we, uh, what excellence entails uh, at, at the highest level, I think, to embrace gender and culture and things like that. Uh, I think it's been gratifying that uh, the barriers to women entering the hard sciences um, have fallen at the undergraduate level so that women are free to do that. I'd like to just, comp but of course their advancement on the Stanford faculty, among other things, is um, very woeful. This is even more true, I've observed, uh, in other parts of the world. In trips I've made to countries like Jordan and Pakistan, um, the number of women in, uh, at the undergraduate level is almost overwhelming, uh, particularly the high-performance students, uh, partly because males are pressured to go into low-paying jobs quickly and women are traditionally enabled to, uh, until they're married, to continue their education. Uh, but I think the barrier to further advancement of women in some of those countries is even more marked than it is here due to tribal, religious, cultural differences. Um, don't know what we can do about that, but I think it's important to realize that um, U.S. interests in those parts of the world um, would benefit by getting more women to uh, do more after their undergraduate education. Other comments? Well, let me thank uh, the panelists for a set of papers that interacted well, even if, uh, even if it wasn't planned in, in advance. <laughs> and uh, thanks to all of you for joining us uh, for the first session this morning. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.